the message rolls downhill. If someone returns back from a returns home from a meeting and his staff learns that he appreciates the other's company, you know, word gets around an office. Oh yeah, yeah, he wants to do this thing for Trudeau or, or you know, yeah. vice versa. Let's let's get on it, right? And then it creates an institutional culture. Welcome to Canusa Street, a podcast at the intersection of the issues and policies between Canada and the United States. Here are your hosts, Scotty Greenwood and Chris Sands. Hello and welcome to Canusa Street. Our uh, podcast today is unfortunately just me. My co-host, Scotty Greenwood, is uh, is on her own. So we're doing a solo episode with just me and a terrific guest, Alex Panetta, who many of you will know, writes for the CBC um, and has been covering uh, President Biden's visit to Canada. And so we thought we'd get a perspective. Um, I have to say, Alex, I have been feeling... A little bit like Elvis this week. <laughs> so, well, I've been thinking, you know, without my co-host Scotty, I found a new place to dwell. It's down on the end of Canusa Street. It's Heartbreak Hotel. So, <laughs> I thought you were going to say it's because you love me tender, or 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 that Joe Biden has left the building. The <laughs> Joe Biden has left the building. Yes, <laughs> yes, and we're all shook up. Um, <laughs> so, Alex, I, when I I know I know a lot about you. I know you're a Montreal Canadiens fan, uh, and that you're a Montreal. Uh, born and raised. I also know that uh, when I first met you, I think you were working for Canadian Press, and then you worked for Politico, and now you're working for the CBC, so you've been moving through the media food chain. But the one consistent thing about your career has been you've been in the space of explaining to Canadians what the heck is going on down here, and you're very good at it. I actually think, you know, you hit that sweet spot between getting the detail and the complexity, but also making it really accessible. And I know we're a confusing country, so thank you for that good service. But just as an as an opening comment, how what what's your secret? Is is there something you look for in trying to relate what's going on in Washington to your readers? Well, I think generalizations. When you're trying to uh, report on a foreign country to your, you know, readership, generalizations are almost always stupid. <laughs> like really, the 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 more you get to know about the United States, and I'm sure the same is true if you you know were to move to Canada, you find that trying to summarize a a, a country in one sentence um, is almost impossible. And yeah. and and doing even just when you're comparing data, apples to apples comparisons are so hard because you have to look at subnational levels. <laughs> I don't know if that's really a secret, but it really uh, it does uh, filter into my attitude almost on a daily basis. The understanding that things are always a little bit more complex than they seem. And uh, I try to, you know, make it easy to read. Well, I, I'm certainly a fan, so uh, I appreciate that. And I also appreciate that you're on Twitter and you're you're uh, sort of king of all media, as they say. But I can find you in a lot of different uh, formats, which is great. So you watched the summit. This was President Biden's first summit, uh, first visit to Canada as president. Obviously, he'd been there before. Taking a step back overall, how did you think the summit went? And how do you think Canadians reacted to, to the summit and the messaging and President Biden's visit? Well, I could, I could just state factually that the, that the uh, reporting on it in Canada was overwhelmingly positive. I mean, just it was, uh, I don't know, if not a home run, then certainly a solid dripple in terms of the media coverage and the, uh, the reaction to it. Um, you know, I'd, in the lead up, I had compared... Um, I, I, I detected a common theme in some U.S. presidents' speeches in Canada. I, I, uh, John F. Kennedy's in 1961 is a good example. Uh, Obama's in 2016. I compared it to you know U.S. presidents sometimes delivering a, sort of a, a lump of sugar um, or a spoonful of sugar, and with a, just a little bit of medicine uh, embedded in that sugar. Uh, you know, in other words, you know, heaping 
gobs of praise on Canada, delivering syrupy odes to the relationship, and then in the middle of that, asking for Canada to do something a little bit more in the world. And, and you know, JFK's speech is a perfect example. 1961, mm -hmm. he, you know, delivered those lines that every single politician who comes to Washington always yes. repeats. You know, history has made us uh, geography. Yeah. I, I still mess it. I still mess it up. <laughs> but, uh, but let's remember it is in that same speech. There was a message to John Diefenbaker, whom he detested, and he was trying to get Diefenbaker to join the Organization of American States. Yep. And he was also talking about Canada taking a greater role in the world. And he said, nations like yours don't shirk uh, responsibility. He also talked about a growing NATO at the time. And, you know, everyone remembers Obama's speech in 2016, where he talked about, the, you know, the world needing more Canada. He got such a standing ovation that people were clapping while he was asking for more money, <laughs> you know, for NATO. <laughs> Uh, and it is a, it is a technique, I, and I think sometimes um, it comes from Ottawa. I I gather the feeling that sometimes there are requests that they really hope the president will make personally because they feel that that will either carry more weight or they can quietly walk away as it falls like a stone. And I remember George W. Bush when he went up beginning the second term, and Paul Martin, uh, Prime Minister, invited him to make the case. For missile defense and he did and it went nowhere but uh maybe that's part of the function too so um on this particular visit was what did you make of the fact that it took so long to organize is that something that i saw some of the early commentators saying well at least he's finally coming why weren't we far farther up in the list in that kind of thing do you think that's that's just covid that's that canada isn't seen as a big problem so you don't dash up or what was behind all of that that's a, that's, that's a good question i just and and i preface that by saying yeah so my own takeaway after the trip was that you know he, he broke that mold i just I, I i described earlier his speech was a little more like reagan's or or you know or bill clinton's which was all sugar, right? I, I described it as a, on TV as a truck of cotton candy just rolling through, <laughs> rolling through downtown Ottawa. Um, why didn't it happen sooner? I mean, uh, to be fair, they did have a virtual summit early on in, sure. in Biden's yep, presidency during true. COVID. So, uh, and it was a fairly uh, extensive one. I think they had it was like ministerial uh, level mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. meeting. So, you know, I, I don't necessarily fault them for that. I, I also do think that the rest, you know, the agenda here has been pretty packed. I mean, the fact that the president's going to uh, to uh, to Ukraine on a secret train ride, I think we'll probably he's kept him busy for a while. Uh, I know the Canadians would have liked him to, to, to spend uh, more time uh, mm -hmm. there and maybe come sooner. Um, but, you know, like, or and perhaps to visit a factory floor in Canada to make the case that we're building jobs together. Mm -hmm. And I'd ask you as an American whether you think that would have been smart politics for an American politician to go celebrate that you're exporting jobs. <laughs> so, uh, you know, and, and so maybe the Canadians may have had unrealistic expectations about what they, you know, what a U.S. president would be keen on doing uh, mm -hmm. in another country. Uh, but, you know, he came up for two days, which is the first time I think in over 20 years an American president's done that for a bilateral visit to Canada. Yeah, usually there's no overnight at all. They're up and down. And it's a funny relationship because I think because the two capitals are in the same time zone and so close to each other, there's such a constant flow of communication between officials on both sides. What makes a presidential visit sort of stand out then? I mean, is it really just for show or do you think that it was a catalyst for getting some of the deals that were in discussion finally closed? Well, I know for a fact it was a catalyst in getting the safe third country agreement. So right. I, I spent a lot of the day uh, yesterday talking to officials about um, about that agreement and finding out what, what happened because it was kind of a shocker mm -hmm. when it was announced i mean the fact that it was announced was surprising enough but then when the announcement came a hawk-eyed immigration analyst here in, in in washington said hey this thing's a year old you know nobody knew that it had been signed in early 2022 oh wow so so you know and then it was kept uh, kept quiet for a year uh and you know so i spent some time asking around about that 
And what essentially happened was uh, during the pandemic, uh, ministers and cabinet uh, secretaries were traveling a little less. And in early 2022, I guess they were still limiting their travel. And they, the immigration minister of Canada, Sean Fraser, signed the agreement uh, in Ottawa in March of 2022, sent it to Washington uh, by courier. Mm-hmm. Uh, Alejandro Mayorkas signs it. And then it goes through this interagency process, uh, this review process. DOJ, Department of Justice is involved, CBP. Uh, uh, Border Patrol, OMB at the White House. And the Americans were telling the Canadians it's going to take 18 to 36 months. So best case scenario, this takes effect uh, late 2023. Worst case scenario, it takes effect in 2025. The Canadians kept pushing. So it's not good enough. We need to go faster and faster. Yeah. yeah. And and uh, ultimately, and, and they kept it secret because they didn't want to rush at the border, right? So the secret was just sitting there in the ether for a year and a half, or for a year. And with Biden's visit approaching, the Canadians kept impressing upon their American colleagues, like, he can't come here and not say anything about this because because this is going to be the number one story the Canadian media are going to focus on. Absolutely. The trip's going to be seen as a failure. And so suddenly that focused the mind. And and so what people told me is the Biden visit, and this is American officials too, saying normally, you know, people... they, didn't, they weren't specific, but I have reason to believe we're talking about the National Security Council. We're talking mm-hmm. maybe about Jake Sullivan, uh, maybe Secretary Mayorkas himself. So people who usually would take three weeks to get on the phone were suddenly available within three hours. And this thing moved at lightning speed. Uh, and apparently a very significant um, turning point came when the Canadians said, fine, we can help you with migration as well. We can take in an extra 15,000 Western Hemisphere migrants. Sure. That delivers the president a political win here. And the presidential visit focused the mind. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, and so that 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 was that's one reason why we have to have these summits every once in a while to bring bring things forward. Um, Canada is going to be hosting later in 2023. We think the North American Leaders Summit. I know Mexico hosted in early 2023, but it was technically the 22 meeting. Schedule slipping as they sometimes do. My question for you is, you know, there's that summit coming up that Canada hosts, but there's G7, there's G20, there's so many meetings that world leaders are at where Canada and the U.S. are both members and sometimes do a little bilateral business. What makes a one-on-one visit, just, you know, Trudeau and Biden or the president, prime minister, whoever they are, stand out in your mind sort of from all the other conversations that happen all year round? Well, for starters, I think they're a lot less likely to spend time together at a large summit, right? I mean, you travel to a place like Bali or something, I think it's it's perhaps seen as a waste of time to sit down in a room when you could do it a little more easily on yeah. your own continent. So that's the, that's the first thing. I mean, it just just the FaceTime is, is going to be less at a, at a large gathering. At a smaller gathering, like having the, pro- the president meet the, the prime minister's children, um, yeah. like he did the other day, my, I think there is value in that because um, you know the message rolls downhill. If someone returns back from a returns home from a meeting, and his staff uh, learns that and he appreciates the other's company, I, I I just think it's like it's it's likelier that you know word gets around an office. Oh yeah yeah he wants to do this thing for Trudeau or or you know yeah. vice versa. Let's let's get on it right and, and then it creates an institutional culture just based on the fact that you get along right yeah. now yeah. you you don't want to over estimated either. I've, I've heard some politicians, especially, you know, referring to the Mulroney-Reagan era as this golden age in Canada-U.S., you know, high-level relations. And I think it, it's also easy to overstate the extent to which that moves mountains. But I do, I do believe it, it, it can help. No, I, I think so, too. Uh, I, I wonder if you can confirm or reject this hypothesis. But one of the things that struck me about the North American Leaders Summit in, in the United States and Los Angeles last June was that 
the Canadians were well represented. And we were talking about the hemisphere. They're not always big uh, fans of some of these, but they came. They agreed to take 5,000 Central American migrants. Uh, Trudeau was there. Melanie Jolie was there, the foreign minister. Very nice. But uh, our other neighbor, Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, did not come. And even worse, said that he wasn't going to come because uh, we didn't invite the leaders of Nicaragua, Cuba, and Venezuela. Um and the U.S. responded by inviting him to Washington for a one-on-one. And I, I've heard from some Canadian officials that it, it it didn't bother them so much that Biden hadn't made it up to Canada yet because they were talking about it until then. And they were like, hey, we, we were the good kids. We showed up. We did what you want. Why are you rewarding this this guy for being you know, rude, I guess? Um, what do you what do you think about that? Is that something that uh, that actually does move schedules or was that a little bit of peak uh, kind of that's all healed now that we've got the visit done? I, I'm assuming it's healed now. The thing and I, I kind of get why the Canadians would have been uh, miffed last year, given those circumstances. But at the end of the day, he comes and speaks in the parliament, spends time with time with the uh, prime minister's children uh, and, and frankly, delivers the deliverables um, at a meeting in Canada. Uh, but yeah, I was just thinking, you know, like you mentioned, uh, the, the AMLO no-show last year. It's incredible. Like, it's just the contrast with what was going on in Mexico in the last week. I mean, the, the president of Mexico uh, referring to fentanyl as kind of a U.S.-created problem, uh, what he's doing with the gas uh, sector, uh, talking about Donald Trump's persecution as a political witch hunt, uh, accusing the U.S. of blowing up the Nord Stream pipeline. I mean, this is unbelievable. I'm trying to figure out his angle here. It's, it's, it's wild. I know. I know. Well, I'm not the Mexico Institute guy, so I, I, I will share your astonishment. Um, <laughs> But yeah, I, th- I do think sometimes there's a uh, there is a uh, a comparative that k- kicks in, and Canada, U.S. are often said to be you know the best friends, you know, longtime partners. Uh, when we were talking about supply chains, uh, some people talked about friend shoring, near shoring, ally shoring, and um, well, Canada's all three, both near and friend and ally. But I'm not sure you can say that about very many other countries. So uh, those those words end up mattering quite a bit. So one of the other things that uh, that was on the agenda and discussed was Canada's role internationally. And as you say, and we often want Canada to do more. Two of the big things um, have been Haiti and Ukraine. Tony Blinken talking about that when he came up. Where do you think Canadians are on those missions? And I know there's been no firm announcement, but those are big asks. Um, How are Canadians viewing that encouragement uh, almost the world needs more Canada in specific places? Is that feeling more like an honor or a, a curse no, it's a, it's, yeah responsibility is a burden isn't it <laughs> it is um uh the yeah i i don't i get the impression well it's not a you know it's pretty evident right now that canada is not uh, enthusiastic about leading a multinational force in haiti i think the asks on canada may at least have paused for now i i, I think they may resume uh you know the Biden administration has been quite gracious in public, and that's why I referred to the cotton candy earlier, because any any uh, any irritants were either handled in, in, in private or resolved before the summit. Mm-hmm. Um, but, I mean, nobody's saying it won't it won't resurface. It's, uh, yeah. you know, the, the impression I'm getting is uh, they're going to go back to their respective corners, try to see with the United Nations, uh, try to work with the United Nations, and eventually uh, maybe the ask will come again. Well, Haiti's a tough one. I don't. I don't know anybody who knows Haiti who thinks that's going to be an easy, uh, an easy mission. But Ukraine, it seems the focus uh, of the U.S. ask is post-conflict reconstruction, and obviously, 
that means you have to be post-conflict, which we're not. But Ukraine is a little easier, would you say? I mean, I know there's so many Ukrainian, uh, ethnically Ukrainian Canadians, and it's a fairly well-organized group that talks to both liberals and conservatives. Is that an easier ask, or is it easier just because it's down the road and all that we need to do now is sort of plan ahead? Yeah, I would assume that that's an easier ask. I mean, just because it's 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 a it's a request for treasure, not blood, as well potentially, right? Which is which is you know it's um, a much harder thing to do. Yeah, no, I I couldn't imagine a scenario in which Canada wouldn't be ex- excited about participating in that kind of project. Now, it depends what the dollar figures are, but I'm I'm sure they'd be interested. I'd be actually also keen to hear what the Europeans have in mind in terms of integrating uh, sure. Ukraine, because I think that would be the reward at the end of this whole thing for Ukraine to sort of get the Western integration it's been asking for for all this time, and not just have a handout, but actually be able to earn money. Um, So we're going to take a quick break, um, as we sometimes do. When we come back, I want to talk to you about some of the treasure issues related to um, subsidies and the Inflation Reduction Act. Uh, We'll be right back. Are you red, white, and blue, or just red and white? Beaver or bald eagle? Ryan Reynolds or J-Lo? Canusa Street, a masterclass in cross-border relations. This is where Canada and the United States intersect on the policies and issues of our two great nations. But you know that already. That's why you're here. The question is, if you want more of this bilateral bonanza delivered directly to your inbox, and you know you do, how about signing up for Scotty Greenwood's weekly email updates on Canada-US relations? Head to cabc.co to sign up today. And now back to Canusa Street. All right. Welcome back to Canusa Street, everybody. This is Chris Sands. We are Scotty Greenwood-less, and I'm feeling the pain. Uh, I wish she was here, but I'm on my own. Making me feel better about that is uh, the fact that our, in our studio today, we have the guest, Alex Panetta, longtime friend, longtime U.S. watcher uh, for the Canadian media now with CBC. Um, Alex, Alex, I wanted to talk a little bit about one of the issues that you've covered very well, and that is the way that Canada is affected by um, Inflation Reduction Act, CHIPS Act, and other subsidies. Industrial policy is back, and uh, it's back in a big way, and the U.S. pockets are deep, and we're spending a lot of money. And I know there's been a big concern about how that alters supply chains and limits opportunities uh, for Canada, whether it's critical minerals or EV batteries or what have you. With President Biden's visit, what did you sense was the tone on including Canada in these kinds of um, industrial policy measures, or or is was the tone still very America first? No, well, it certainly wasn't America first during that uh, during that visit. I, uh, uh, the, the, my own takeaway is that the tightening of U.S. supply chains and an era where uh, comparative comparative advantage is not the be all and end all of economic policy. Uh, is going to be uh, potentially good for Canada in, in a number of ways, uh, mm-hmm. potentially problematic in others. And we could sort of tackle each of these things one at a time, like Buy American, and then sort of what's happening with uh, with uh, uh, critical minerals and auto production. But like, just to take one example, um, at the end of this summer, there was a little noticed uh, detail in the communique talking about how uh, Trudeau and Biden are going to announce this spring Defense Production Act money for critical minerals projects in Canada and the United States. Now, we, we knew that the Pentagon was looking at potentially funding some of these projects. As a matter sure. of fact, I think you hosted uh, a briefing on, on the we issue did. here at the Wilson Center. So the last I heard was that the Pentagon was looking at uh, over 70 projects from Canada um, uh, as potential funding targets. 
And we just found out the other day that, yeah, the money's coming. Uh, Canada has apparently won at least one of these uh, these grants. Um, so that's that's I mean, that's just an example of how sort of the United States focusing on security and tightening its its uh, its supply chains could create some winners in Canada as well. And even if the Pentagon money isn't the majority of the money going to a particular project, it certainly counts as a big uh, kind of vote of confidence in that project as it competes for private capital. Um, we're meeting today as we're doing this interview, it's budget day, and we don't know what Christian Freeland's put in Canada's budget yet this year. So I just put that in as a caveat so everybody understands if they listen to this next week why we didn't know the answer to this. But do you think that Canada will respond with big subsidies of its own? Is this going to be a bit like the 80s and 90s, where especially around the auto industry, there's this subsidy war, competition for factories and uh, and for industrial jobs? Or is this something where we're growing the pie, Canada's going to add to what the capacity overall of North America is in, in a way that's a little less competitive? And, and really, if it is going to be a competition, how far can Canada go in matching U.S. subsidies, especially these days? Yeah, well, there's this, yeah, the, the, there are limits to the distance Canada could go in competing with the fire hose of U.S. funding that was just uh, unleashed in the Inflation Reduction Act. Mm -hmm. I think Canada was very fortunate to get uh, exempted from the electric vehicle tax credit um, exclusion. Um, although it seems like everyone's getting that exclusion now. <laughs> um, uh, yeah. yeah, Japan uh, announced. Yeah, today, every, so, yeah. exactly. Um, uh, no, so I, I think there's some nervousness in Ottawa with uh, and elsewhere in Canada with good reason. That's going to be hard to compete with uh, with uh, you know the hundreds of billions of dollars in in uh, in, in credits. Um, so, you know, that's probably not going to be Canada's advantage in, in attracting capital. I mean, they're going to have to be smart and targeted in it. And, um, I, you know, I'm not sure what, what, what they can do. I'm actually very curious to see the budget. I, and I'm, I'm assuming they'll try to sort of do it on a, on a more targeted, smaller scale level rather than try to compete dollar for dollar. It's impossible. At, well, and there was an interesting uh, uh, clause in the Inflation Reduction Act that relates to setting a price for carbon that's captured and stored. Um, talking about $85 a ton, which is much higher than prevailing price in Canada, and some concern that Canadian CCS technology companies will be finding themselves going to Texas or anywhere else just because they can make more money taking that technology south of the border. That's great in the sense that it helps the environment, but maybe puts some jobs in Canada uh, on their way to uh, Texas instead. So there are lots of ways in which these industrial subsidies could end up causing uh, a shift, not always a good one for Canada. Absolutely, and and you mentioned that, but I'm also I think the same could be said of the uh, of the pipeline sector, where you have Canadian pipeline companies doing booming business on LNG uh, um, uh, transmission here in the United States, uh, and feeling a little more constrained within Canada. And then there's this question about whether you know you uh, you export more uh, natural gas to Asia, and you know the argument is well that's going to increase Canada's greenhouse gas emissions, uh, but it could actually displace coal, so it lowers the world's emissions. Do we want to take the hit? So when we show up in international summits, we'll look bad, but on the other hand, we've also contributed to lower emissions around the world. It's a it's a it's a it's a tough one. It's a tough one, and I remember Jean Chrétien trying to pitch the idea that Canada should get credit for U.S. emissions reductions based on exported hydroelectricity. So, I mean, it's not a new idea. Well, maybe it'll catch on. Um, one of the people who was at the summit, and this was, we always focus on the president and, and Dr. Biden, his wife, but uh, one of the people at the summit that was interesting was um, former Michigan governor, now Secretary of Energy, Canadian-born Jennifer Granholm. And she's Secretary of Energy. For those folks who are listening who are not American, you might not know that our Secretary of Energy has a big role on nuclear. And there's been a lot of discussion of nuclear power going forward in particular 
that Canada is talking about building a, a nuclear waste storage facility in the Great Lakes region, which has got some members of Congress uh, eyebrows raised, if not hackles. That became a very late-breaking issue in advance of the summit, and it didn't seem to really make any headway with the president. But um, on issues like that, you know, this competition for um, the, for moving forward on nuclear, but maybe getting in the way as environmentalists look to, to discourage nuclear in favor of hydro and so on. Can we work together to solve climate or is this going to be a competition all the way through? Well, you know, and this is one of these moments where I feel like the microphone's headed, pointed the wrong way today. I'm used to asking Chris about this stuff. I'm, I provide, no, I receive the raw materials for my stories from Chris and I put it out into the world. But no, so no, I'm not having covered the nuclear issue, but I had, I have covered um, the Hydro-Quebec issue in, in Maine, oh, sure. which is very similar to what you described. Yeah. And and it was it was an interesting um, referendum. I was there in its final days. And, and I know Secretary Granholm was very disappointed in the result. Um, now, I, yeah, it's for people not not who haven't followed it closely. Uh, there was this this project to build a hydro line through Maine uh, to customers, I guess, in Massachusetts. Yeah. Um, Boston and, area. Yeah, and and it was opposed by um, environmentalists, people who live in the area, didn't want these hydro lines through their forests. Also uh, opposed by companies with competing interests, including companies with fossil fuel holdings. <laughs> so, and then, it, you know, this great grand coalition took on the uh, the pipeline, uh, the sort of the uh, hydro line and won. Uh, but results in, you know, that this resulted in the loss of a project that could have taken the emissions equivalent to a small city, um, yeah. you know, off the off, off the table. Um, and I, I'm not even sure what the latest is on that, because I heard that the administration could actually come back and try to force it again. I'm not sure whether you you followed it. Uh, well, this is uh, this is more sands than you want, listeners of Canusa Street. But I, I'll just say that I, I my understanding was that it was a referendum to ask Massachusetts to not buy this electricity. So it was a funny thing because it didn't really force the revocation of permits directly. It was asking uh, another jurisdiction to make a comment. Uh, you you were covering it. You were even closer. But I th it seems to me that it's not binding unless people act as if it is binding. And you know the great thing about the United States. We solve nothing through negotiations. It's all litigated at the end of the day. So that's how we know what's true and not. But I'll be watching the courts then. <laughs> <laughs> we have to watch the courts. So... Um, Something I wanted to ask you about, I've wanted to ask you about for a long time, but what are the kind of aspects of Washington, you've seen this for a long time, that really strike you as a Canadian that you wish more Canadians understood, both positive and negative? What about this uh, this city and our politics is, is not making it through to the average Canadian? I try my best to explain this, but I probably have to do it more bluntly. And it's the fact that no one's in charge here. You know, people. That's true. I mean, there are a thousand points of power in this in this city, and whereas in Canada, power kind of emanates from one building. It used to be called mm -hmm. the Langevin Block. It's in the Prime Minister's office yeah. across the street from from uh, from Parliament Hill. And and really, I mean, I don't know if Canadian and I don't know if Americans understand this fully that that the Prime Minister um, instructs the cabinet. Cabinet members have seats in Parliament. They introduce legislation. And it gets done. I mean, nine times out of ten, a, a bill bill uh, pushed by the prime minister will happen. So mm -hmm. Canadians uh, grow up in a political culture where, let's just try to think of the equivalent here. President Biden says, here's the bill I want passed. Uh, Speaker of the House, you know, uh, let's just to say, let's assume it's still Nancy Pelosi for the purposes of this conversation. Sure. Says, sure, no problem. It gets done. Passes the Senate because the Senate's not elected in Canada. And it's and it's, it's like a rubber stamped. Uh, of course, I'm maybe simplifying it a little bit because I mean there there is sometimes pushback within Parliament, but 
Canadians sometimes say, why won't President Biden solve this problem? Why, you know, why won't President, you know, Obama or Trump? And and sometimes we ascribe to presidents things that the executive, uh, that the legislative branch does uh, and vice versa. Uh, ascribe to the legislative branch, branch things that the president's done. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, that's it's a constant because it like it's part of almost every story. And it's almost like you have to sort of spell it out in every single story, which gets hard to do because if you do it for a few years, you're like, I don't want, I don't have to explain this again. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and it's, it's an interesting point as we've heard from President Biden already this year of his proposed budget. And today is being budget day in Canada. The reaction is very different. The president's budget, everyone sort of chuckles about and says, well, that's never happening. And then uh, the budget we hear today is going to be uh, is going to probably pass because it is backed by the government. Yeah, well, yeah, exactly. So first, uh, you know, the per- per- perfect example, the first U.S. president's budget day I ever covered. So I took I took some of the details out and said, oh, this is news, this is news, this is news. And I started preparing a story and I I, I understood that, you know, it's unlikely that, that all of this would pass Congress or even much of it would pass uh, through Congress. But I ended up looking for some comment from, from Canadian uh, diplomats here because some of the stuff touched Canada and they're like listen let's take you aside here for a second explain to you how things work in these parts <laughs> <laughs> right? yes. which is it's all science fiction this stuff like none of it's going to pass right like it's and so and then you realize it's more of a message um, to to Congress than or to the American public than it is a blueprint for government but that's got to be hard because you have American politicians who just weigh in and they say something and people are like oh my gosh he just said that about Canada and that may or may not be a significant thing yeah, and you and you sort of need to sort of uh, be able to spot the difference, and and uh, um, also not not to sort of uh, become uh, <laughs> how do I put this? Um, you don't want to go so native to the point that you forget that this is news, right? You want to once in a yeah. while point out something unusual, or and I'll give you a perfect example. We're speaking on on Tuesday um, Tuesday afternoon. Uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene, uh, mm-hmm. uh, 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 Congresswoman from uh, from Georgia, just suggested during a hearing in in in, um, in Congress that this Can- morning, in fact, this right? morning, that Canada was helping Mexico invade the United States through you know uh, the absence of uh, of uh, uh, visa requirements for Mexicans in Canada. So there's a part of me that says, okay, it's pointless. She represents, you know, a faction of one party that controls one uh, uh, um, chamber in Congress, doesn't control the White House, doesn't control, you know, so uh, the the Senate. This and and it's just it's just somebody thinking aloud. But on the other hand, is there potential uh, news there as a leading indicator of where the United States? policy-making apparatus is on, on visas. Will there be pressure on Canada to to impose visas on Mexico? And I, I think that's not impossible. So you look you, you, on, on, a, on a day like today, you have to hear the comment and say, okay, uh, does this matter? Maybe, maybe not. Will it matter? Maybe, maybe not. And sort of you have to sort of make that judgment call on every on any given day. That's amazing. Uh, one last thing, and, and this is because I don't have uh, the great Scotty Greenwood, my co-host here. Um, you've worked with Scotty a long time. Tell us something nice about Scotty. A good anecdote, anything you're thinking. I know you're missing her. This was a bait and switch. She did a lot of the outreach to set this up, and then you got stuck with me. Ah, <laughs> it was uh, my pleasure to be to see you. And also, I, saw, I got to see Scotty the other day in, in, in Ottawa, where she kind of helped uh, coordinate oh, yeah. this, this 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 gathering in, in Ottawa, where basically anybody who's anybody, everybody's anybody, it was it was, was at this thing uh, on, on Friday night. Prime Minister was there. Uh, the two Michaels were there, members That's of the Scotty. opposition. She's amazing. I host with the most. I I, I struggle to uh, to maintain a much smaller rolodex than her, and I don't understand how 
She seems to know every single person who cares about Canada and U.S. issues, which is a lot of people. <laughs> it is a lot of people. It's amazing. She She's amazing. And uh, as a fellow American, uh, we're doing our best to keep uh, traffic moving here on Canusa Street. Alex, thank you so much for coming on the uh, program. And we hope to have you back again soon. Thanks for having me. This podcast is brought to you by the Canadian American Business Council and the Wilson Center. If you like this episode, help others find our show and give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify.